I invite you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Jeremiah. We'll be reading the last half of the chapter 5 of Jeremiah. If you want to turn there, we'll begin in verse 12, and we'll proceed to the end of the chapter. And I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. God's Word declares, They have lied about the Lord, and said, It is not He. Neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, Because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation, it is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb, they are all mighty men. And they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds, they shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, they shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. And it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall, say, shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. And the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Well, this morning we persist in our study in Jeremiah. We continue it. Um, Just a quick review I want to give, um, particularly for our guests here, to get up to speed for us here in the middle of a chapter in Jeremiah. Uh, We have been looking at Jeremiah's response to God as God challenges Jeremiah, who is tender-hearted, a tender-hearted prophet to the people around him and being sent with a very uh, difficult message. The message is God is about to judge you, and this message is not something he gives for a week or two. 
but uh, throughout his entire ministry of 40 plus years, his responsibility is to chastise the people of Judah, uh, to call them to repentance and to describe for them in many uh, ways the judgment to come. And God had responded to Jeremiah's tender-heartedness by inviting him to look around, run through the city of Jerusalem, go back and forth across the streets, up and down the lanes, and see if you can find anyone who is doing righteously, who, who loves the Lord, who wants to serve him, who is, who is doing justice, who seeks out the truth, who says or who not only says what is right and sounds good, but who does it. And of course, Jeremiah is struck by the fact that that brought forth evidence that his people were indeed in need of judgment. But before they were in need of judgment, they were in need of repentance. And before they were in need of repentance, they would be in need of a prophet. For this is the work of God, that he does not bring judgment down without first warning his people, and indeed not only his people, but even those who are not called by his name. That's going to be very important to our study today in the last half, uh, to one facet, one point of today's message, that God not only does this to Israel to the north and then to Judah to the south, but he does this to many peoples to issue them a warning through some of his own prophets, whether they call themselves by his name or not. And we have some glowing examples of them responding to such individuals. We also have some examples of them failing to respond and receiving God's judgment. Uh, One good example, very quickly, is in Egypt. We know that the Pharaoh who knew Joseph responded. He had the dream. Joseph interpreted the dream, puts Joseph in charge, and he begins to talk about the God of Joseph, and he makes it the God of Egypt. We then see not so very much longer, before another Pharaoh comes up who doesn't know Joseph, nor knows his God. And though Moses confronts him and confronts him and confronts him with plague after plague after plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so God warns him and warns him, gives him multiple warnings, and he does not respond, and then his nation faces the judgment that comes upon him. And so there in one land, we see the two extremes. That God sends out his prophets to warn people to repent because judgment is certain to come if repentance isn't manifested among them. And not just repentance by word of mouth, but repentance of the heart. And that's Jeremiah's concern. And it's interesting that here the prophet who is the sensitive one, the weeping prophet, uh, who is tender-hearted, is uh, overwhelmingly in his descriptions and in his call to the people talking about not their words, but their heart. Turn to God with all your heart. And we're going to see that again come out in our passage before us today. And so, having been led by God to examine his own people His conclusions are that certainly they are on their way to judgment, that they do not do great things, and even the leaders of the people who ought to be leading the people to fear God are in fact don't even know the way to God. And those leaders aren't just political leaders. Those leaders that he talks about 
particularly for Jeremiah, who is the son of prophets and priests, are the religious leaders of Judah. So we come to the middle, and we again have a passage, uh, verse 12 of chapter 5, through the end of the chapter, and we're going to have this very well-organized presentation. Verse 12 and 13, we're going to have a description of the false prophets the religious leaders of the day, and and how they were lying about the Lord. They were telling the people a message the people loved to hear, but it wasn't the truth. But the people wanted to hear it, and they liked it that way. They liked hearing stuff that they enjoyed hearing. All of us like to hear that we are insulated from trouble and harm um, for whatever reasons, and these people had good historical evidence. They had good reasons uh, within the, the verbiage of God's promises, within the history of Jerusalem, even within the, the, the terminology of the city of Jerusalem as a city of God, that uh, they could produce message after message uh, that was a lie. And the lie that he says is that no evil will come upon us. We're not going to see war. That's the sword. We're not going to see famine. And people love to hear that, don't they? You are insulated. You are God's special people. And God would never let anything bad happen to you. And so you need to just enjoy your life and go out there and live it knowing that the hand of God is on you and that you that that blessing is just waiting for you. And you just need to go out there and get it. No one preaches that anyway anymore, right? Well, they all do. We all like to hear that. The biggest churches in our country are led by men who are saying just those things from the pulpit. Exactly what everybody wants to hear. Blessings are waiting for you. You don't have to change anything dramatically in your life other than your attitude towards God and just recognize that he's a good God and give you nothing but good things. But in fact, we find that that's the reverse of how to attain to the good things of God. And so Jeremiah identifies that they are lying about the Lord. And they are just become so much wind. There is no truth in them. And so this is how he starts off this section of prophetic utterance. He's going to end it at the end of the chapter, if you look, if you jump ahead with me, to verse 31, at 30 and 31. Verses 30 and 31 says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. My people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? And so here we find the bookends. And so the argument here in this passage is going to start with false prophets. It's going to end with false prophets. That is the the primary concern. We can talk about the political leadership of Judah at the time and the things going on among the kings that Jeremiah serves under, beginning at Josiah and proceeding all the way through into captivity. Um, But Jeremiah's primary concern and the Lord's work through Jeremiah is about the religious leadership. Prophets and priests, what are they doing? They're lying. They're giving false confidence to the people. And because the people are filled with these lies and like to have it that way, and that's what it says in verse 31, the, the people love to have it so. Um, they are ruling not in their own, not in the wisdom of God, but in their own wisdom, in their own power. And they are enabling themselves to influence their nation and to maintain a credibility which is incredible because God didn't give it to them. And so the people love to hear it. They applaud these messages. They flock to hear these guys teach because they don't teach you change at all. You don't have to repent of anything. 
You've done nothing really wrong. God just can't wait to pour out his blessing. The only thing holding him back is, is you just don't believe that he's good enough. What they have done is lied about the Lord. Now, am I here to say the Lord isn't good? Oh, no, I would never say that. The Lord is good. But he is also holy, holy, holy. And he has a righteous demand for his blessing. It is not indiscriminate. That is, he doesn't just hand it out willy-nilly to whoever he pleases, but rather he gives commands to be obeyed, and his expectation is that if you will respond by faith and trust him and walk in his ways, that he will bless them. And so he comes to Abram and he says, get out of the land of your fathers, go to the land that I'll show you on the way, and I'll bless you. And guess what? Abram gets up out of the land of his fathers, packs up, leaves his whole family, doesn't know where he's going, doesn't know where the end is, but he's going to go till the Lord stops him, and God blesses him. If Abram had stayed in the land of Ur, the blessing wasn't available. It demanded his obedience. And again and again, we see throughout God's word this pattern. But the prophets of Israel ignored them. The preachers of the day didn't want to discuss that facet of it. They just wanted to focus in on the goodness of God and the protection of God and the fact that we are called by his name. After all, we are Israel. We are, we are the land of Judah. We have Jerusalem in, in, that we are living in. And certainly God's going to protect the temple and the temple mount. And, and we are secure here. And remember, they had some history, right? They had a whole bunch of Assyrians at their gate and they were gone one morning. So they had a little historical support for their position, but it was error. And so God takes the prophet's words and turns them on themselves. In fact, the prophet's words God is going to use directly, pointedly. Everything they said is not going to happen to you is going to happen to you. I'm going to make them liars. I'm going to demonstrate to you that what they're saying is not the truth. And so he says in verse 14, because you, and he's speaking to the religious leaders, because you speak this word, behold, I'll make your words in your mouth fire, and this people would. Everything that you're spewing out of your mouth is, I'm going to take everything you say that's not going to happen, it's going to pour forth on the people of Judah, and everything you say not going to happen is going to happen, and it's going to destroy these people. And it's going to be essentially drawn directly to you. They will remember, oh, so-and-so said this would never happen, and now here it is, famine, here it is, war, here it is, destruction. Here it is, loss, here the temple is destroyed. Here, everything they said would never happen, exactly happened. And so God promises that he will destroy them, that they will lose their harvests, they'll lose their flocks, they'll lose their, then their herds, they'll lose their vines, their trees, even their fortresses are gone, everything. They're going to have just a remnant left. He says in verse 18, I'm not going to make a complete end of you. You're going to have a remnant. They're going to be carried off into captivity. But it will be this way because of what you have said won't happen is the very things that's going to happen And we're going to talk about the instrument he uses here in a moment. But I want you to look at verse 19 very quickly with me. And it will be when you say, 
Why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Isn't that great? You see, people who are misled by false teachers, and I spoke to this very briefly last week, and I didn't develop it very much. People who are misled by false teachers believe that they have basis for an accusation against God. Because they have been taught, sometimes using Scripture out of context or in a very narrow way or, or um, twisting it, perverting it, um, because they have been taught this information, then when things don't happen, they don't go, unfortunately, to the preacher and say, why did you tell me this when God is doing the opposite? You don't find them saying that. You don't find them going to the, to the prophets and the priests. Why did you tell us that we were safe? That's not what they ask, is it? No. What false teachers do is they set people up to be rebellious, not against them when the, they are when what they say doesn't come true, but against God. That we think we have an argument against God because we don't know the whole of Scripture because we don't have a balanced knowledge of the truth. We think we have an accusation against God and we come to God and says, why is God doing this to us? And they're pointing a finger at God and blaming him. Well, certainly God is the moving force behind the judgment that's coming upon them. But the problem wasn't that uh, he didn't fulfill his word. The problem was they didn't meet any of the conditions of his word. And so the accusation comes, and we see this consistently. I see it consistently in my ministry. How can God let this happen to me? How can God allow this? I have tried to do this, 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 this. And, and we, we start pointing the finger at God and saying, how could it be? And here's the answer. Just as you have forsaken me, serve foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. The answer is... Not how did I do this against you, but what have you been doing in your service to God? What have you been doing in your lives? Let's look at it. And he takes us right to, he's going to talk about some of the sins they've committed. We're going to get to that when we get down to verses 26 and following and what their sin looks like uh, that developed the spirit that brought rebellion that uh, led to all of this. But he's really going to boil it down to one singular idea to challenge them with, and that is, who has been your God? Really? What have you really been serving? You call yourself my people. Remember, this is Judah in Jerusalem. These are priests at the temple. You call yourself my people, my priests. You make claim to my law. These are all coming out of your mouths. And remember, verse 2 back there, it says, they say, as the Lord lives all the time, but they swear falsely because it's not what's going on in the heart. They make all the show. They're in the temple. They're doing the sacrifices. They're, they're, they're making some effort towards the law, although they violate the first of the commandments. They have other gods before him. Um, but he challenges them right down to their core and says, let's talk about what is really a priority to you. Let's talk about what you've really been serving all these years. Has it been me? 
or yourselves? As about me or the other gods? You see, I'm a jealous God. You, you can't serve me in addition to. You have to serve me instead of. You serve only me. And when you serve others, you cannot be serving me because you can't think that I'm pleased by that in any way. And so he challenges them. He says, why are you coming with this complaint against me? I'm not really your God. Not really. You've been serving yourself. You've been serving these other gods. You have all these things of the world. Look around. You've got, you've got places of worship for every idol that, of every nation around you. It's being practiced in your land, on your, in Jerusalem, on the temple. You're practicing all of this. You have gone after the world's gods. And frankly, it's still the case today. Um, We come to God and say, God, how can this happen? And we never look at me and say, what have I been serving? We don't question ourselves when bad things happen, do we? When we have challenge, by the way, we have very few bad things happen to us. We think it's a horrible week if our car breaks down or something like that, or we might lose a job, um, which tells us again how pampered we really are in this country. Um, but when bad things start happening to us and things start breaking down, either relationships or work or, or stuff, um, we start to have an attitude of resentment against God. Where does that come from? It comes from a false expectation that somehow God owes me goodness simply because I call upon his name. Because I'm here this morning, God owes me something. And this is the issue. Let me jump down, and let's jump ahead a little bit um, to verse 23. I know I'm kind of skipping around. I don't usually do that, but need requires me today. Verse 23, it says, This people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. Well, where did that come from? That's really the end result. That's the conclusion of where their heart has gone. How do they get there? How do you get to that point? Well, it tells us. Isn't that great? They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain, both former and the latter, in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. And so instead of, and and that idea of the fear of the Lord produces a thanksgiving. Instead of being thankful and recognizing, you know, God, the reason I have food on my table is because of the Lord. He's the one. And remember, he just got done exposing them and saying, I'm the guy that, that controls the oceans, decides where they end and where land begins. And I keep those boundaries. I'm the one that does that. I'm the creator. And Instead of fearing the one who is control of all things, who is the creator and sustainer of all, and is the provider of everything, who gives the rain, who gives the harvest, we don't fear him. And our heart isn't turned toward him. We have no fear of God, and it, this is the comes from somewhere. Where does this Lack of fear come from, look at verse 25, your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. Why am I missing out? Well, 
I'm pretty sure that that's what that means. Your sins have withheld good from you. So it is my sinfulness that turned my heart from fearing the Lord. I'm an unthankful person. I'm not thankful for what I have already received from the Lord. I have an expectation that I should get everything my heart desires, even though what my heart desires is evil all the day long. Uh, I should have every expectation of that. And if anything doesn't go just so, just my way, uh, my accusation is against God because I don't fear him enough because I have false information about him. That he's just a bank account in the sky that's supposed to rain on me all the time. That I have no responsibility in this relationship. That I can be the wayward child and get away with everything and, uh, and expect at any time at my demand for God to bless me. God says, that's not going to work. You can't persist in your sin and think, I'm going to bless you. And in fact, your sin is what's keeping you from the good things I would have for you. That's why I'm sending Jeremiah to tell you to repent. Because I truly do want to give you good things. But you have prevented me by your own sin. Your sin is what's keeping God's goodness from us. And instead of calling people to repentance, we have preachers today, just like then, who are calling people to claim the promises of God by their mouths and never live the requirements of God by their lives and their bodies, let alone repent of what really drives them. I often tell people when you start getting your priorities right, your prayers change dramatically and no longer are the things of this world of such a great concern because you recognize that all of the plans of men, all of the dreams, the American dream and all of that is pretty pathetic prayer requests. For one thing, they don't last. They're weak, easily destroyed and they don't satisfy. If they satisfied, people would be happy. We're in the wealthiest country pretty much in the world. Why aren't people happy? You know your co-workers. You know your neighbors. Wealthiest people on the planet. Are they happy? No. Americans are on more depressants than anyone else in the whole world. Antidepressants, sorry. <laughs> Normal depressants just because they're not happy. Because they've received all of this, but they are not thankful. They do not fear the Lord who gave it to them. And so there's complete misery, even in all the bounty. Why? Because of their sin. Because really they're serving false gods. Because these false gods of the nations, these false gods of the world, of materialism, of humanism, of nihilism, I mean, take whatever isms you want, go right down the list, um, are dissatisfying. They're unfulfilling. They are temporal, weak, powerless, vain gods. And yet, we go after them. How long does entertainment last? That's the real God of our of our genera- of this younger generation. I won't put myself in there, but I see a lot of my friends in it too. Entertainment's their God. Um, back in the 80s, money was in 
work was God, and we worked really hard to have fun. Now they just have fun, don't expect to have to work hard at all. Uh, how long does entertainment entertain? Yeah, it doesn't satisfy, does it? Since it's over, it's over. Now you're looking for something else to entertain you. And ten minutes after a very entertaining thing, you sit around and say, I'm bored. I can prove it any night of the week here. Every Word of Life Club night, I can prove it. We can have this fantastic game everybody loves. Um, Oh, New Year's Eve. Here we go. New Year's Eve. I plan the games. Okay? So I have a game out there, and everyone's having a great time. We stop playing the game, and I go and sit down because I worked during the game. I'm making it happen. And uh, so I go and sit down, and it's not ten minutes before someone says, What's next? Pastor, what game we got to play next? I'm like, do we have to play a game next? Well, I'm bored. Ah, oh, the entertainment wore off because it's over. Didn't last. You have a very weak God, but you serve him. Oh, you serve your God of entertainment, don't you? I used to bow to that God a little bit in my own ministry because I was sure that if I wasn't entertaining in the pulpit that I couldn't keep people in church. And I got convicted of that. that We're not here to entertain. This isn't a time for fun. This is a time for worship. This is a time for sober-mindedness. This is a time to deal with important things that are lasting and eternal, not silly things that make us feel good and and then we walk out and we're confronted with the world's garbage again and we're looking for the next thing to entertain me. Oh, I want to preach sermons that'll last you, not just till the next sermon, but the balance of your days till our Lord's return. So what makes us unthankful is our sin. What is the sin? Well, we have gone after other gods. We have gone after the worldliness We have thought that they have all the keys to happiness, to joy, to fulfillment, and they have none. They are lost. They are searching. They are are in despair. And they use drugs to hide it. Whether it's the drugs we don't call drugs, like alcohol and things like that, or whether it's prescription drugs, they're using drugs to hide it. Their gods don't work. And fundamentally is a heart issue. And here is the heart issue. Verse 22, you do not fear me. Why don't we fear the Lord? God asks the question, will you not tremble at my presence because I'm the one that's controlling everything? Shouldn't you be a little bit concerned about what I think instead of whether or not things went your way this week or not? Whether everything fulfilled your dream of of a worldly happiness? Why haven't you been concerned about, are you pleasing me? Why hasn't that been a priority in your thinking and in your expectations? Why isn't that on your agenda? Why? Because you've never been taught that. Or if you do happen to be in a place like this, where you are taught that, you dismiss it. God says, let's talk about your heart. And the question of the heart is, 
do we even think to tell ourselves, to remind ourselves, to say in our heart, we should fear the Lord, our God. We should fear the Lord. I should be serving him. I should be concerned about not whether he's meeting all of my expectations, but am I meeting his expectations? Whoa! If I start thinking like that throughout my day, throughout my week, um, what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be repentance. There's going to be righteousness. And we'll see it borne out in our lives. And then, the good that God wants to give us, he can give us. But our perspective on what is good will change dramatically, won't it? I have lost more sleep over worrying about people breaking into my stuff than I care to admit. Right? Haven't you? And the more stuff you own, the more sleep you lose worrying about people stealing it. And if it gets worse, when your kid's a cop. Because she's convinced us that everybody wants to steal everything we have every night. And so suddenly I start thinking, well, maybe it's just better not to have all this stuff. Then I don't have to lose all the sleep over how to protect it. You see, we get caught in this trap and we lose our joy. And God says, come back and fear me. And our desires change. And now when I start thinking, how do I please God, instead of how can, why isn't God pleasing me, our heart changes and we start seeing that these things aren't important, that there are much more important things, much more durable things, much more enjoyable things in life that I need to pour my energies into. And then the wonder of wonders, God says, then you begin to enter into the good stuff. And it has nothing to do with bank accounts and food and cars. The good stuff lasts a lot longer than any of those. Well, Israel's not listening. Judah doesn't want to hear it. Don't want to hear, they dismiss this. They love hearing the guys tell them that everything's going to be wonderful. God can't possibly do any damage to you. Uh, you're his people, you're precious, you're special. Even though you're in sin, and the sin is described for us in 28, 29 that they're involved in. Um, boy, and, and the social sin, the social facet. We talked about the heart sin, we talked about the rebellion a little bit, not very much, I could talk a lot more about it, but it's going to come up again in Jeremiah. Uh, the rebelliousness, the, the, the stubbornness that they don't want to hear it. Um, but what does it look like socially? Well, it looks like unjustness, where evil people get rich by stepping on the weak, the fatherless. They prosper at the cost of the needy. And again, we stand pretty guilty, don't we? We stand guilty. Oh, boy, do we stand guilty. You don't think so? Um, Your cheap goods that you buy at Walmart come at a cost. And every now and then we we hear sounds of the labor force in countries like the Philippines, 
like China, Bangladesh. And we hear rumors of the work conditions that they're under. And we dismiss them. You know why? Because we don't want to feel guilty because all that's important to me is I save a few bucks. And so we thrive while others struggle. We've tried to eradicate, there's a period of time in this country where we worked hard to eradicate that idea. And that produced for us really the middle class idea that's really pretty much getting lost again. Because profits mean everything. And social value of people's lives and their quality is ignored. And this was the social manifestation of Judah's sin, was they didn't care about the needy. In fact, they were going to uh, build their wealth off of them. Um, And every study that's been brought out has demonstrated that things like the lottery and gambling build their wealth off of not the wealthy, they build their wealth off the needy, who are going there desperation, thinking that here is my way out, if I can just draw the right number. I can escape all these problems. And I remember dealing with one family years and years ago um, and, you know, devastated. Why? Because they gambled it all away. Why? Because they needed, they had needs and they thought this would be the way to meet them. And here people are building wealth off the needy. They are growing fat in their wickedness, off of the fatherless, and justice is lost. This is the public manifestation. So from the heart of the false god to the rebellion, to um, the unthankfulness, and to the accusations against God, all the way into the social realm, their sins have covered the gamut. And so God says, yes, I'm going to judge you. And now we come into the last point, which I thought was going to be the second point, but I did a little bit out of order, is the instrument God uses to judge. Remember I told you that God doesn't just talk to his people and call them repentance, but calls all nations to repentance. He calls all men to repentance, all men everywhere. Um, And I gave you a couple examples out of Egypt. Um, And we saw Jonah last week, or several weeks ago, when we talked about the spirit of Jonah versus the spirit of Jeremiah. And how all of Nineveh turned. Um, the spirit of that slave girl in Naaman's home who had compassion on her master, the one who probably killed her family, and shared with him how he could be healed if he just went to the prophet in her land. And that spirit of, of preaching and proclaiming hope to those even outside of Israel, outside of Judah, Um, outside of the quote-unquote people of God. So God calls all nations. And in the midst of that, um, God raises up nations and works in and through nations. And I want to talk about this just a little bit because it's going to be very important to the balance of the book of Jeremiah. Um, God says, I'm raising up a mighty nation. And it's foreign to you. You don't know their language. They're the ones that are going to come. And they're going to come with extraordinary power. They're going to come and just devastate you. You will not be able to stand against them, not one iota. And he's going to repeat this over and over again throughout the book. We've already seen one passage. We dealt with very briefly about it. 
And, of course, he's speaking of the nation of Babylon. Um, and he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and I just want to share with you that we get the idea somehow that God um, isn't intimately involved in the nations. That, uh, and, and we have believed that lie because of our American philosophy that we choose the nation. and The best form of government is a democratic one where the people choose their leadership. And when God says that he's the one that raises up kings and kingdoms, he reserves that right for himself consistently throughout the Bible. And that's why we are called to submit to the authorities that are at hand and never to rebel against them. We are never called to that. Uh, and even if it's King George misspending our, overtaxing us, we, we are called to submit to authorities and leave that into God's hands. But God here raises up an adversary. And this is the counterbalance to hear the people are saying, God, you can only do good to us because I go to church on Sunday and I believe it, and so I'm going to receive it. Never mind how I live my life or what's important to me. Right? So we have these people over here. And here's God over here. Because of your sin and your unthankfulness, your rebellion, because you don't fear him in your heart, that you would accuse him of such a thing, um, is raising up adversity against you. He's raising up adversity for a purpose. That purpose is to break you, to break your rebellion, to break your stubbornness, to break you of your sin. And I want to just share with you, when God raises up an adversary, we need to recognize how far we are from repentance that God senses a need to do this. He doesn't do this on a whim. This isn't the first thing he did. He sent prophet after prophet, warning after warning. And here he is again warning them. He says, listen, I've already got the nation picked out. I already have the man in my mind. I am ready to raise him up and I am producing adversity against you because you are not surrendering yourself to me. You're following after all these other gods, and here you are. So here's the deal. So these people over here are saying, God, why aren't you better to us when they already have wealth? They already have all this stuff, and God is over here saying, um, it's gonna, you think that's bad. I'm building an adversary for you. I'm building an adversary you can't even imagine. You think the Assyrians were bad. Wait till the Babylonians show up. Nobody's stopping them. When they come. And God raises up this adversary. And we often think that somehow um, God should judge the adversary. And I hear people, I hear preachers, uh, you know, I remember during the Cold War, I was a teen and young adult, and, and you know, preachers were against uh, the Soviet Union, and we preached against communism, and, and communism was the biggest evil of the day. Um, but uh, the fact is, is that if God raises up an adversary like that, we should be sensitive to the fact that there's a reason. And now today, of course, it's radical Islam, which is not a religion, but a political system. Uh, and now that is the great danger. But perhaps the greatest danger isn't those adversaries, but the ones who claim to be the people of God who are not 
We're going around telling people, you choose your own leaders, don't let God choose them. We'll help you. We'll fund your rebellion. We'll arm rebels against strong men. And we bring chaos in country after country after country. The people bringing chaos that are rebelling against God is this nation. We find out that these strong-armed men who were violating civil rights, because we're civil rights-oriented, um, of their people, were doing so to suppress this horrible faction within their, each of their countries that has now risen. Why? Because we've cut off the foot that held their neck to the ground. As much as I deplore the actions of those leaders of those countries of, of Iraq in its day under Saddam, of, of Syria under Assad, of, of Libya under Gaddafi. As much as we deplore the, the things they did, we see now the suddenly that without their presence there uprises this horrific system of thought that was being kept in check by these that God had put in those lands. And the question is, who has undone that work? And it was us. And God raises up these leaders to fulfill their responsibilities and in their nations. And here we might look at Babylon and says, oh, he's going to do horrible things. They're going to do horrible things to the people of Jerusalem. They're going to do horrible things to the people of God. But God raised them up as an adversary to perform his will. And before it's all over, Nebuchadnezzar is going to bend his knee and give glory to the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is going to serve that God. He's going to write a letter to his entire empire saying, this is the true and living God. But we would view him as an adversary, the enemy. That God's raising up to judge his people. When his people are complaining that things aren't good enough and are overconfident that they are secure because they call upon his name, God is over here at work 20 years earlier raising up an adversary. Raising it up. Strengthening him. Strengthening him. And soon here comes Nebuchadnezzar. And we have confused many times cause for judgment with judgment. I'll give you one example since I'm on a political rant today, which is really unusual of our guests here. Like, oh, this guy's really um, very unusual for me, folks. Just hang in there. Um, I've heard a lot of my friends say our country deserves judgment because we have support abortion. Um, And I've studied this very carefully in God's word. And I just want to share with you the slaughter of unborn children is not cause for God's judgment ever in the Bible. The slaughter of unborn children is God's judgment everywhere in the Bible. When we start losing our children, when pregnant women are cut open by the sword, that is God's judgment. And we need to recognize that. That God is laying against us and against us and against us. And instead of repentance, we find 
rebellion and stubbornness. We find a heart that says, I have no fear of God. Though he brings the rain and the harvest, though he controls the oceans, with no fear of him. And so how strong of an adversary needs to be raised up to get a hold of God's people to start thinking in terms of recognizing that our hope is only in the Lord, only his way by repentance and not by accusation. God, how can you let this happen? It is our sin that has forced this to happen. And the sin um, that we talk about and we act as if abortion is the worst sin on the planet that you can commit, but it's not. The real sin is that we didn't have a fear of God in our hearts and we went off and served foreign gods. We served the world's interests, not God's. We sought for God to please us instead of us to please God. And he raises up an adversary to humble us, to break us, because we will not break ourselves. And whether that happens on a national level or on a private level, an individual's level, um, we see the principle is the same consistently throughout God's word. If we will not repent, an adversary will come against us to break us. But God will not let you persist in claiming his name and not living in a way that pleases him. We'll not let that go on and on and on. And so the call of Jeremiah is established. Why is it so necessary that you keep on preaching all these years and even though he's by far the minority... And no one wants to hear it. They're going to kill this guy. Maybe some of you feel that way this morning already. Um, they're going to kill Jeremiah. They want to kill him. They're going to imprison him. They're going to throw him in a pit. They're going to send him into exile. They're going to do all kinds of things to this guy. Because he went against what everyone wanted to hear and told him the truth. Because he was more concerned about pleasing God than God pleasing him or pleasing men. And he comes a testimony to us. What does repentance and service really look like? And it is, I will speak the message that, that pleases God, though it displease all men. And Jeremiah is our pattern for ministry, not just to the people of God, but to all nations. We give them a message they must hear, not when they want to hear necessarily. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word. And for its challenges, and we are struck by it. And we know we need to decide whether we want to live to please you or think to manipulate you to please us. And Lord, we see your warning and know it's real. Though it may be delayed, we know that there are adversaries being raised up because of our rebellion. And so we pray we have a spirit of repentance and a desire to please you. And we pray you might work in us your pleasure. That we might receive your good as you have declared in your love for us.
we may look to an eternity rather than being swept up in the temporal that is this world. We praise his in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.